for some reason, uh, I've been focused on Matthew 5 a lot the last week. Um, that happens to me once in a while. When I'm talking to the Lord about things and certain passages come to mind, sometimes I get stuck there. And so you're going to be stuck there with me for a while. Um, it's a good place to be stuck, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today I'd like to begin a, a study of a passage that opens what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and that's because it's a teaching Jesus gave on a mountain. Uh, this particular passage, however, is uh, referred to as the Beatitudes. It opens this teaching of the Lord Jesus. And of course, the word Beatitude is actually derived from a Latin word meaning uh, happy or fortunate. Uh, but as we'll see, our Lord Jesus has a very distinct idea in mind when he speaks of being blessed by God, uh, an idea that cannot be described uh, simply as happy or fortunate. So you might say that the word beatitude, meaning happy or fortunate, is a somewhat unfortunate title uh, for this section of Scripture. It's well-intended, but a little bit off Thankfully, most people don't know what the word beatitude means, so they just read the passage and get the right idea, is my hope. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of, of Matthew 5 and read all the way through verse 12 to get some of this context in our minds. And, uh, but we're going to focus just on verse 3, uh, the first beatitude. They call it, blessed are the poor in spirit. So begin reading in, uh, with me in uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew. And seeing the multitudes, he, being our Lord Jesus, went up on a mountain. And you, you can imagine why he would do that. It's easier to be heard by a large group of people when you're up high like that. And when he was seated, uh, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So it's interesting. He's teaching the disciples, but where everybody can hear. And in fact, in a way that everyone can hear. So it's interesting that the teaching, though directed to his disciples, is really intended for this larger group. In other words, he wants the larger multitude to hear what he's saying to his disciples. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And then he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice he begins and ends with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we call an inclusion, right? That means that Everything in between here is about those who are in the kingdom of heaven, those who have possessed the kingdom of heaven. So although it's mentioned in the first blessing and the last blessing, it applies to all of them. These are all kingdom blessings he's talking about in this section. And then he says in verse 11, blessed are they when, uh, are you rather, when they revile you and persecute you. Now, he's just carrying on with the final blessing, right? He's adding something to that final blessing in verse 10. He's explaining more about it. 
because he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And now he's going to talk more about that. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. With this larger context in mind, let's pray and then see what we can't learn here. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you uh, for the opportunity to be instructed this morning from uh, Acts 14 and to be reminded of the important reasons that you uh, left elders in the church where you established the office of pastor, elder, overseer in the church for the teaching of the church, but also be reminded that Though some of us have this role, we're no better than anyone else. Everyone in this congregation is a son of God, a daughter of God. We all share the same inheritance, heaven, everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, all that comes, all the spiritual blessings that come through Christ, we all share them. And so we thank you for that reminder. And as we come to your word this morning, we... We also uh, remember that we we were called not because we deserve to be called by you, but because you loved us in your grace and you called us by your grace and not because of anything we have done. Thank you for that reminder. May it humble us now as we come before your word. We're reminded also that we should be good hearers of your word this morning. And so please help us to be good hearers of your word, I pray. Work in our hearts. Help us to hear what it is you have to say to us and take it to heart and live it out. Make us more like Christ as a result of our time together this morning in your word. I ask all these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've studied uh, this passage, I have come across an interesting uh, sermon entitled Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit Who Mourn by John Piper. And he has something interesting to say. He says this, back in 1978, I spoke in Aspen, Colorado to a gathering of university students and people off the street. At the end of my talk, one of the students asked a very common question. He said, Isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? My answer was very simple. I said, yes, period. I can't remember how the conversation went from there, he writes, so let me just pick it up here. My return question would be, why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't usually look at a crutch and say, that's bad, it's just a crutch. People don't in general think that crutches are bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? I think the answer that most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. And so it's offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch. But Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people. 
people who know that they are spiritually and morally and very often physically crippled. Now, I think Piper's on the right track there. And I think our Lord Jesus would agree with that attitude. Um, I think it's just the idea he has in mind here in the first of these so-called Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3, when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when our Lord Jesus spoke of being blessed, he of course meant blessed by God, right? Who is the source of all blessing. Then we have to think about what does it mean exactly to be blessed by God? Now, some think it means simply to be happy. And there have actually been a few modern versions that translate the Greek word makarios here, uh, which we have in the New King James and most translations, solid translation, as the word blessed. Uh, some take it just and translate it happy. But the term actually has more to do with the state that we're in. We could say a happy state, maybe, meaning a state that's a good state to be in. Um, and it's a happy state because it's due to the benefits bestowed on us by God and his grace. Whether we always feel happiness emotionally or not, that doesn't mean, I may not feel blessed, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not blessed. I may not feel joyfully as I should sometimes uh, how wonderful it is to be experiencing God's grace, but that doesn't mean I haven't, right? And so if you just translate it happy here, you might get the wrong idea that it's all about our emotional state of being, and that's not really the case. John Stott is essentially correct when he reminds us that it is seriously misleading to render Markarias happy, for happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they may feel like, happy, but what God thinks of them and what, on a, that account, they are. They are blessed. Now, when we ask precisely what constitutes the nature of this blessed state that we're talking about, of course, we're going to have to examine the rest of these Beatitudes, uh, as well as other scripture passages along the way, to get an answer. So we're actually going to be spending a number of weeks moving forward here getting an answer to the question, what does it mean to be blessed? Because, and it's a long answer. And, and we'll get through this section of Scripture and still not have the full answer. We'll still just be scratching the surface because the blessings of God are just too wonderful to completely sum up or even fully experience or understand in this life perhaps. But we're going to begin the process today, and as we move through uh, this passage in the coming weeks, it's my hope and prayer that not only will our objective understanding of what it means to be blessed by God, uh, that that will be deepened and sharpened, but also I hope that our, that our subjective experience of joy and happiness that comes from being in that state will also be increased, because I do think God wants us to have joy because we're blessed. It's not that I don't think God wants us to have good emotions about this, right? Uh, he surely does. We just can't sum up blessing by those emotions and whether we feel them or not. And thank God for that.
if whether or not I was truly blessed had to do with how I felt on a given day, I'd be in big trouble, right? And thank God it doesn't. Thank God it has to do with his judgment of me and what he's done in my life. And that should produce something in me called joy, at least, at least part of the time, right? Hopefully most of the time. But it doesn't sum it up. At any rate, what, what can we say thus far about what it means to be blessed? Well, at this point, we can say that it means we're experiencing the kingdom of heaven as a present reality in our life. Notice that Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not one day they'll experience the kingdom of heaven. But right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that means we are in the kingdom now. Now, there's a sense in which we don't enter the kingdom to the future, till the future, right? We don't have the fullness of the kingdom till the future. But we experience the reality of the kingdom even now as, you might say, a foretaste of what's to come. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's almost like the future kingdom and the reality of the future kingdom has reached back into the past and manifested itself right now through Christ in our lives. And it's pulling us forward to the future, you might say. It's like a heavenly tractor beam for those sci-fi fans, pulling us to the future. I see at least one Trekkie out there that knows what I mean by a heavenly tractor beam. That's what we're experiencing. And that's, that's a blessed thing to be in the kingdom. And there's a lot that comes with that. And you can spend your life studying the Bible to discover more and more fully what it means to be in the kingdom. Of course, it means uh, we're forgiven for our sins. It means we believe the gospel, right? We have everlasting life. We look forward to a future resurrection. We've been chosen and called by God. We've been chosen from the, before the foundation of the world. That's one of the blessings of being in the kingdom. So you could look throughout the scriptures and uh, to get a better idea what that means, right? That's a big thing to say. We're in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> but this is said to be true only of the poor in spirit. So then, who are the poor in spirit? If it's only the poor in spirit, he's saying, that are, have as a present possession the kingdom of God or currently in the kingdom of God, it's pretty important then to understand what he means by this phrase, poor in spirit. And in order to understand what he means by it, we're going to have to remember some Old Testament background for the usage of this language. Uh, because, as with so many of his expressions, Jesus didn't simply pluck this concept out of the air. He didn't invent the idea of being poor in spirit, actually. Well, he invented it as God many, many centuries before when he revealed the concept through the prophets, right? But Jesus, in his earthly ministry, isn't the first person to talk about this idea. In fact, very little of what Jesus says in the entire Sermon on the Mount is really new. Almost everything he says is an application of teaching of the Old Testament to the current situation. If there's something that he says that's new, it's that the kingdom is here now through his messianic work. That was the shocker, right? But almost everything he has to say is actually just taking what the Old Testament teaches what the scribes and Pharisees he keeps dealing with in the context in Matthew 
ought to know, right? What they ought to have been teaching the people and then teaching it correctly. And we'll see this is true of this phrase, poor in spirit. We'll see it's true of these other ideas as we move forward in the coming weeks as well. This was a well-known idea, this idea of, being, of poverty of spirit. And he was referring, as I said, to something they should have already known and understood the people to whom he's speaking. As we'll see, <clears throat> briefly surveying the Old Testament employment of the term for poor in this regard, it's often used to, ref- to refer, of course, to the poor in a literal sense in the Old Testament. But it takes on a metaphorical usage, a heightened usage, because often poor people, people in extreme poverty, what we consider poor, would be rich in those days. But I'm talking not knowing how you're going to eat on a daily basis, poor. Those kinds of people tended to be more desperate in crying out to God and realize their need, right? A little more readily than the average Joe. And so, so the concept of being poor then took on this metaphorical meaning as someone who realizes his or her needs, and in particular, spiritual needs, and that only God could meet them. This is the kind of idea that the term takes on when it's used metaphorically. And we're going to look at a number of examples of that in order for you to see what I mean. And what therefore Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll begin in Psalm 9. We'll look at a number of psalms mostly. Um, And then in Proverbs and Isaiah. But uh, Psalm 9, I'll read verses 17 and 18 there in Psalm 9. Psalm 9, 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Now here the poor are clearly those who have been driven to desperation by their circumstances and therefore see their need for God's help. So we can see why the term poor became a metaphor for referring to spiritual poverty, can't we? As Jesus employed the concept in our text. The next psalm we will examine reinforces this idea. This is Psalm 34. And I'm going to read a little bit more of this psalm, verses 1 through 8, because it's important to read, to read this in the context to, to see not only what Jesus is talking about, but uh, what David meant when he wrote this. Beginning in Psalm 34, verse 1, we read, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, here we have a poor man crying out and in his poverty being blessed. Same ideas that Jesus is talking about, right, in Matthew 5, 3. Now, this is David writing, and he said in verse 2 that this poor man is humble before God. And then by the time he gets to verse 8, he spoke of how blessed such a man is. But this man is only blessed because he's been driven by his poor, humble condition to taste and see that the Lord is good and to trust in him. Now, we know he, he wasn't spirit, or, or literally poor. David was a king, pretty wealthy, actually. He was clearly talking about this poverty of spirit. Poor and needy for the salvation that only God could bring. And so, out of his poverty, he was led to trust God instead of himself. And this is precisely the idea that Jesus had in mind. But we'll see that the concept is uh, even richer still. This concept of spiritual poverty is rich. There you go. Um, And we'll turn to yet another psalm, Psalm 40. I'll read there verses 16 and 17. Again, we're trying to get an appreciation of what the disciples ought to have heard Jesus saying when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What would he have expected them to think when he used those words? He would have expected them to think of passages like this, right? Psalm 40, beginning verse 16 says, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, speaking of the Lord. Let such as love your salvation say, Continually, the Lord be magnified, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. He's stunned that God could even think, he's so poor and needy, he can't imagine God would give him a second look, right? This is humility. You are my help and my deliverer, do not delay, oh my God. So again, we see that the poor in spirit are not necessarily those who have no physical wealth, Because, again, this psalm was written by King David. He was pretty well off as a king, right? He certainly wasn't poor, literally poor by the standards of his day. He was wealthy by the standards of his day. So when he says he's poor and needy, what does he mean? Well, he obviously means, right, in his humility, I'm unworthy. I I, I don't have it within myself to save myself. Only you can do that for me, God. He's spiritually poor, and he knows it. But his father is rich, his heavenly father, so he goes to him for what he needs. And this led, this led uh, David to worship God. Those who, who see how unworthy they are and are humbled by that realization, they're led to worship God. And we'll find such motivation for worship in yet another psalm of David, in Psalm 86. Here I'll read Psalm 86, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 86, verses 1 through 5. And here he writes, Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, 
for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Well, that's what a spiritually poor person does, right? Rejoice the soul of your servant for you, O Lord. For to you, rather, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. That's what he needs, forgiveness. He's spiritually poor because he's a sinner. He needs forgiveness. He doesn't need earthly wealth. He needs the spiritual blessing of forgiveness. You're ready to forgive and abundant in mercy, he says, to all those who call on you. So the spiritually poor person recognizes that he or she is spiritually poor and recognizes that God alone can meet their need. And what they need is forgiveness and mercy. They need salvation. They need what God alone can provide. And no person on this earth, no matter how wealthy that person is, could ever provide. Only God can do this. So we see once again that the poor in spirit, they trust in God rather than in themselves. It's only those kind of people who possess the kingdom of God. You can't have the kingdom of heaven without this heavenly attitude, you might say. Such people see their sin. They're moved to repentance because of their sin. They cry out to God for forgiveness, believing that he's ready to forgive in spite of their unworthiness. Because he's merciful, he's gracious. And that even though they don't deserve it, they know they can trust him to forgive them. Remember in this regard that the context of the Sermon on the Mount as given to us by Matthew was actually quoted earlier this morning, in which he described the beginning of Jesus' ministry that led to this Sermon on the Mount like this in Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, the first thing he says in this teaching about those who have the kingdom of heaven is that they're poor in spirit. And I would argue that's tantamount to being repentant. As we've seen in the usage of the language in the Old Testament thus far, So we're not surprised to find in our text that Jesus says of the poor in spirit that theirs is the kingdom of heaven because they're the ones who are truly repentant. They're the ones who are really listening to him when he's preaching the kingdom. As John Calvin put it, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. And he's right. Indeed, uh, David, the king and the prophet, Again, spoke of the way in which the poor in spirit rely upon the mercy of God in Psalm 109. Psalm 109, as we continue our survey. Psalm 109, verses 21 and 22. Psalm 109, 21 and 22. But you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. Not because I deserve it, God, but because... You're merciful. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. 
We've seen before he's crying out. He's depending on God to be ready to forgive. Now he's describing his heart as being wounded. Again, we see that the poor in spirit, they're deeply affected by the realization of their need for God's grace. No wonder Jesus followed up, blessed are the poor in spirit, with blessed are those who mourn. That's the next statement of blessing that he gives. Blessed are those who mourn. Why is that? The second thing, well, because it's very often those who are poor in spirit that know what they ought to mourn for and do mourn for it. The Apostle Paul similarly taught about this in his second epistle to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, he confronted them for sin in their midst, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. They turned from the sin he'd confronted them about. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer, suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That's what David was writing about, really. When he said, I'm poor and needy in my heart, and is hurting, <laughs> right? And he's been crying out to God for salvation. That it's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Blessed are the poor spirit who mourn. That's why... John Piper put it into one sermon like that. Because these things so often go together. It's a good thing to be poor in spirit. Such that one grieves over his or her sins. It's better even than winning worldly riches. As the victor of some great battle, as Solomon said in Proverbs 16.19. He says in Proverbs 16.19, Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly. And that's the same word translated poor. Here's just translated lowly because it means the same thing, right? Better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So if, if, you, if you are one of those people that feels like you're really poor in spirit and you need God and cry out to God, don't let the world make you think that that's a bad thing. Because in their pride, they'll call that a crutch and think that's a bad thing. I don't know about you, though, but when I tore up my ankle and broke a bone in my foot one time, the crutch helped me get around. I needed it. <laughs> because they trust in the Lord, the poor in the spirit don't trust in any earthly thing, not earthly riches or their own strength or abilities. In fact, because they understand that God is the creator of all things, they depend upon his word rather than worldly wisdom. And this is what we find in the last of the Old Testament texts we'll look at, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And you could probably find a number of Old Testament texts that I've not mentioned. I'm just giving you sort of an overview of this concept. When the disciples heard Jesus speak of the poor in spirit, what are the kinds of things they might have thought? What are the kinds of passages that would have been brought to mind, right? 
This might have been one of them. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look. The creator of all the universe, right, whose throne is in heaven, this is the one on whom he'll look, he says, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. So we're getting an idea here of what the poor in spirit are like. They recognize their sin. They recognize their unworthiness before God. They recognize they need God's forgiveness. They need God's grace. They depend upon God's word and they trust what he tells them. Because they trust him as the only one who can save them. The poor in spirit always believes God's word and takes it seriously. The poor in spirit would not dare to add or to take away from God's word as the scribes and Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day, for example. But of course, there are Pharisees in every age. Uh, A.W. Pink uh, described in the early part of the 20th century uh, what he saw some Pharisees in his day. And he wrote this in his uh, lengthy teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote this, Nor is real poverty of spirit to be found among the great majority of the religionists of the day. Very much the reverse, he writes. How often we see advertised a conference for promoting the higher life. But who ever heard of one for furthering the lowly life? Many books are telling us how to be filled with the spirit, but where can we find one setting forth what it means to be spiritually emptied, emptied of self-confidence, self-importance, and self-righteousness? Alas, if it be true that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God, it is equally true that What is of great price in his sight is despised by men. By none more so than modern Pharisees, who now hold nearly all the positions of prominence in Christendom. Almost all of the so-called ministry of this generation feeds pride instead of starving the flesh, puffs up rather than abases, and anything which is calculated to search and strip is frowned upon by the pulpit and is unpopular with the pew. He could have been writing that today. The church at Laodicea was a good example of the kind of church described by Pink. That church was in desperate need of poverty of spirit, as you recall. This will be our final illustration where I'll let our Lord Jesus drive home the point. The one who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. He said, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor. There he doesn't mean literally physically poor, right? He's talking about poverty of spirit. Poor, blind, and naked, he says. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So all this is metaphorical way of describing salvation that they need. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Why, why am I saying these hard things to you, Laodicea? Because I love you. That's what he's saying. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. There's a lot of parents that can stand to learn that lesson today, right? Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Who gets to sit on the throne with Jesus? Poor in spirit, people. That's who. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? To the poor in spirit. He's calling them to become poor in spirit. He says, and I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, see, the poor in spirit will hear. Because they love the word of God. They listen to the word of God. We've seen that in our study. May God grant to each one of us the poverty of spirit about which our Lord Jesus spoke. And the repentance that flows from it. We saw that in the Old Testament, right? This poverty of spirit leads to this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul would put it. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing the Laodiceans, really. These aren't new ideas. They've been around a long, long time. They're not passe. They're not for them Old Testament saints. We don't need this stuff. No, the kingdom of heaven is here now because the Messiah has come. We don't need to worry about poverty of spirit anymore. Nope. Jesus drives home the point. Poverty of the spirit is more than ever necessary, not less. If anything, it's more necessary. Let's pray. Holy Father, for those of us who have come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know what poverty of spirit is because we've experienced it. And we probably regularly experience it anew. As we realize more and more the wonder of your grace and how unworthy we are to receive it. We've come to a place by the power of your spirit where we've seen our need for Christ. We've seen him as he is, as he truly is, and we've trusted in him by your grace. By your grace, we've been given faith and repentance and we're so grateful for that. Help us, Lord, never to become like the Laodicean church 
and start to become prideful and think that what we have is somehow of ourselves. Help us never to forget we are in constant need of your grace because we truly are poor and needy. We're so thankful, though, that our Heavenly Father is rich and that he bestows his spiritual riches upon us. We thank you for that, God. For anyone here today who has not yet come to know Christ as his or her Savior, we pray that you do for them what you've done for us. Work in them that poverty of spirit. Work in them that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Grant them faith to trust in Christ died on the cross for their sins, who rose from the dead that they might have everlasting life and all is a free gift of grace. We'll give you the glory for what you do as a result of our prayers and this message. In the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.